Free Aviation Podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 104, Owens Up, an inspirational aviator from Down Under, coming up in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Zyko, Sean Moody, Eric Crump, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Welcome to the Stuck Mike Avcast. We have a really special guest, somebody who is a kindred spirit, loves aviation, is an airline pilot, and is someone who's truly passionate about aviation. But before we introduce our guest this evening, I want to introduce our co-host this evening. We have this evening, Sean Moody. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good evening. Glad to be back with you, everybody. It's awesome to have you here, and uh, we've missed you uh, on the past couple episodes, but I know you're so busy with uh, with your work schedule, so that's that's awesome that you're here this evening. Also, uh, Victoria Zyko is, is joining us this evening. Welcome, Victoria. Thank you very much, and glad to have you back, Sean. I've missed you. Yes. Well, Sean is actually in another time zone. Uh, he's about one time zone away from us. He's uh, We're in the eastern time zone, and uh, Sean, you're, you're recording from uh, Kentucky. Is that correct? Yeah, but we're Eastern. Um, oh, that's right. You're in it. That's yep. right. You're yeah, now part of, of the state is uh, Central Time. I just realized what part you're in. Yes. Now uh, entering cruise flight. But you know, our guest this evening actually is about 14 <laughs> hours difference right now. We're recording this at 8 p.m., but we're saying good evening. He's saying good morning, and that is Owens Up. Owens Up is a pilot extraordinaire. He is somebody who's truly passionate about aviation, loves to fly for the airlines, and loves general aviation that's why we're having him on the stuck mike avcast owens up welcome to stuck mike avcast it's great to be here carl thanks for that intro <laughs> well welcome i i am actually so excited to have somebody that that loves flying and loves aviation and and we w- we could sit here for hours and talk we only have an hour show but uh owen is truly a dynamic person i want to first thank the folks at playing crazy down under for for actually introducing us to Owen. If it wasn't for them, we, we probably wouldn't have Owen on the show. Uh, I don't know, Owen, if you've uh, spoken with uh, Grant McCarran or Steve Vischer over at Plane Crazy Down Under, but they are some really terrific people. Yeah, no, I know Steve and Grant quite well, actually, and they are. They're wonderful guys, very passionate about flying as well. Yes, and, uh, and, and, and you know, a big shout-out to the folks in Australia. By the way, uh, for you that are listening in Australia, we get some emails back. It is true that I am not a midfielder from Melbourne. If you saw me in person, uh, you would understand that I am a fat old guy and not a very svelte young man that can run down the field, and you'll understand that in Australia, their, their, their football is, uh, is like soccer here in the U.S., and it's quite popular, just as popular as football here. But we're here to talk about aviation and the love of flying. You know, Owen is, he's an author, he's a pilot, he's a speaker, he's an airline pilot, he loves small airplanes, he loves aviation. Uh, But before we get going here, I want to actually first find out from Owen, why is he so passionate about aviation? Owen, why is that? I think it gets back to the old nature versus nurture question almost, Carl. Um, Genetically, I was the the son of an Air Force fighter pilot and my mother was an Air Force radar operator. So um, aviation was everywhere as I was growing up. Excuse me for a second. 
Sorry about that. Um, yes, the uh, and so I grew up around aviation, sitting on airport fences and watching aircraft come and go. But I think that um, that grew the environment. But I think the the um, love of aviation was something that took over and my own energy because my, my brothers and sisters weren't necessarily as passionate. But I was introduced to it and I ran with the ball. I think. Well, that's for sure. And, and, you know, there's something about you that, that I love, and it's in your story. Uh, see, Owen decided to do this trip, and it was a trip around Australia. And uh, he's going to describe that a little bit. But uh, one of the thing, things I love about Owen's story is that it involves his family and his father. And uh, he was to be a, a really key part of this trip around Australia. He didn't do it in a, in a jet. He didn't do it in a King Air. He did it in a light aircraft, a single-engine airplane. So uh, there and back again actually is, is part of a book called Solo Flight. Give us a little background as to what Solo Flight is and why it was so important to you. Carl, I think Solo Flight, I often said to people it was um, about two weeks in the execution, six months in the planning, and 45 years in the making. Uh my father and I, when I got one of my first flying jobs in a remote region of Australia, drove out to that uh, part of Australia and we said to each other, gee, we should do this in an aeroplane one day. And uh, I did, wasn't to know, but within about uh, 12 months of that, that uh, drive out to the Kimberley region, he would pass away due to cancer. So I, I sort of wanted to go and still do that flight and consequently that time came when I was thinking, gee, maybe I'll fly around the world. And my wife actually said, well, why don't you fly around Australia first? And it all came together. I started to think, well, this is the flight that I said I'd do with my dad. He's not here now to do it with, but I still want to do it. And I started planning and um, that flight then came to be. But as, as you may notice in, in solo flight, there were so many instances on that journey where my father's life and my life still overlapped. And I, I often felt he was sitting in the seat beside me. So it was, um, it was a, a real journey on a number of levels, geographically and, and emotionally, I guess you could say as well. Well, I'm sure, but, but Owen, your dad actually did share the cockpit with you at a, at a certain time, did he not? Absolutely. He did all of my flying training except for my flight instructor rating. So he... Oh, and my first seven or eight hours to solo because I did that as part of a flying scholarship. But other than that, he's my flight instructor right through uh, private training, commercial training, instrument training, multi-engine training. My father was my instructor for all of it. So uh, we did get to share the cockpit. And once again, as he did pass away at that point, it was very valuable time. And I wasn't to realize at the time just how valuable. You know, Owen, I, you know, you truly are an, an amazing individual. But if you don't mind, let, let's talk a little bit about your father, because I think he has he has an amazing story to tell. And uh, tell us a little bit about his background and how he got into aviation. Yes, his story actually makes mine pale into insignificance, I must say. He um, grew up, like so many in, in the United States as well, uh, under the, the shadow of the Great Depression and found himself going to war at a very early age. Uh, he served as an army commando in World War II, and then he was one of the first uh, soldiers on the ground after um, the bombing of Hiroshima. Uh, he came back determined to learn to fly, although he didn't have the education. He um, joined the Air Force as a mechanic, learnt to fly privately, and then was remustered based on those results to become a, a pilot. 
He went on to serve in the Korean War as a fighter pilot and uh, flew 201 missions in Korea and was decorated uh, by the Americans as well as the Commonwealth. And then he came back to Australia, ultimately went into civil aviation and ended up, I think, retiring with about 102 types and 23,000 hours in his logbook. So that's sort of the postage stamp version. But, uh, yes, he, he had a for, – for someone who grew up on a farm and he said to me once, I might as well have dreamt of walking on the moon as learning to fly at that time amidst the Great Depression and the farm and drought, um, he had a remarkable life. You know, and I, I understand now why you feel so humble at some amazing achievements by your father. What what did he actually fly in the war, by the way? Uh, he flew Gloucester Meteors. He oh, wow. uh, His favorite aircraft was the P-51 Mustang, but he flew Gloucester Meteors, which are a, a fighter jet, twin engine, uh, wing-mounted engines, and a bubble canopy. They're of British origin. They were the first um, British fighter jet to come out during World War II. Wow, and I, I, I would love to hear more about his story. And, and you know what? I think you should write a book about him. I, I think it's a... It, it is 80% finished, actually, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> it, it just it just seems that every time I get to a certain point, another person comes out of the woodwork with a wonderful anecdote. <laughs> well, I can't wait to hear that. And do we have a title for the book, or are we waiting on that for now? No, I generally okay. work that the book dictates the title, generally speaking, I find. Yeah. Right, right. And, and that's good. I, I know a lot of your titles are just awesome. But but getting back to your solo flight, which was inspired by your father, and uh, and your whole life really was inspired by this, this terrific man. Uh, and he truly was an inspiration, not just to you, to, to also those of us that actually read your work. Uh, and, and you can see that it, it permeates through your life. This solo flight is something that I really absolutely loved. I mean, out of all your books, I know you have some really awesome books. Yeah. This yeah. is the one that truly resonates with me. Because it's you flying flying around Australia in a small single-engine airplane. But not only that, this is something that I really love about the book. It it talks about Australian pride for a reason. Why is that? There's certain things about the aircraft and the engine that are really important. Yeah, the aircraft I chose to um, fly was a Jabiru, which is Australian-designed, Australian-built. And uh, one of the reasons I chose it despite, in addition to its heritage, it, it was built in the hometown of Bert Hinkler, who was a famous Australian aviator, but it was a grassroots aviation level. I did have someone offer a, a King Air to do the flight in, which had some media tie-ups, which I suspect from a promotional marketing point of view would have been a more successful, in inverted commas, flight. However, the message I was trying to get through was the accessibility of aviation. Here is an aircraft not some towering aircraft over a school child looking up at it, but something they can look in the cockpit and feel tangible with this aircraft. They can relate to it. It costs about the same as their parents' four-wheel drive vehicle. So aviation, to that child looking at it, that school child, it's accessible. And here is something built, designed, made in Australia, and it's going around Australia. Australian school children, Australian families saw it, and that was important to me. Well, you know, th this is truly one of the most relatable stories, I think, uh, that you've written, although all your other stories are just wonderful. But I yeah. absolutely love this one because it, it kind of gets grassroots. It, it brings the regular individual into the aviation realm and saying, hey, you know, maybe I could do this. Maybe I can fly that, an airplane. That was one of the specific objectives when I sat down for the flight was for people to say, I can do this. It isn't some... Uh, 
rich man sport. It isn't some distantly removed pastime. It is a very achievable goal in, in the modern world with a bit of dedication and application. It, it is attainable. And unfortunately, that message isn't getting through all the time at grassroots level. And one of the objectives of the flight was to get that message through. And I think you've done a done a really good job of doing that. Uh, I know a lot of your other books have to relate with airlines and and some of the World War II experiences and the uh, war experiences in general. But uh, I think that I I've realized that the importance of general aviation because you know what we all start there. We all start flying a single engine airplane. Absolutely. And one of the Absolutely. things that I love about you is the fact that uh, you and I have a, a an airplane that we both love, the, the Piper Tomahawk. And uh, yeah. it's just, a, and you still own that airplane, I assume? No, no, an A330 captain uh, bought that off me because, oh. uh, <laughs> yes, it was in mint condition too. But um, he's getting a lot of pleasure out of it. His son was at the age to learn to fly, and my children were very young, so I wasn't getting that much time to go out to the hangar. So I think everyone. It worked out for the best. The aeroplane is flying, and that's what it needs to do, not sit in a hangar. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> it's always the best thing to do with an airplane. Go fly it. It, it is. Um, it is. <laughs> I wanna, you know, I'm, I'm reading the summary of, of Solo Flight, and it just sounds absolutely fascinating. What kind of preparation went into that flight? I mean, that sounded like something you really, really had to plan for. You do. One, one of the um, key operational planning aspects you could say, was because of the distances involved, you had to effectively work out the range of the aircraft and where could I access fuel? Because uh, the remote regions of Australia are exactly that. It's a, a lot of miles between different airfields. So the logistics of the range of the aircraft were probably a dictating factor. Um, and then also you had to factor in aspects such as fatigue, uh, media commitments, because I was raising money for the Royal Flying Doctor Service, so I had a certain amount of media commitments to make. So all of these many branches you had to tie in, but I think the key was that safety had to come first, therefore you had to be a little conservative. I put some ground rules in place that if I landed, I refueled. If I refueled, I refueled to full tanks, and I aimed to be wherever I was going two hours before last light. And um, just those three elements take a certain amount of um, back-of-the-mind stress off you from the start of the day. And I always got away at first light. That was the other one. But, uh, yes, there's, there's planning in the big-picture sense, and there was also planning in the, the micro sense in operating the aircraft day-to-day. -day. What about like uh, mental preparations, like being by yourself for so long and uh, what thoughts were going through your head doing such a big flight by yourself that that's a great question that really is because it um i enjoy the solo flying and it's one thing about airline flying i enjoy multi-crew but there is something about being solo in the aircraft but my last airline flight before i did this journey i took off and i looked out off the uh right wing tip towards the inland australia and i just remember thinking it's going to be a long way and um I thought, gee, am I right for this? Because, you know, a young family, you're away for a little time. And uh, the, the actual solitude I found is one of the most beneficial parts of the flight. The self-discipline of being on your own is, is the challenge. And the challenge when you're sort of midway through the flight and you've landed, you're tired, you've done about four or five radio interviews, 
that at those points you do feel worn, but at no point did the solo aspect um, uh, detract from the flight. In, if anything, it enhanced it because you're able to reflect on, on the beauty you were seeing without having to chatter about it with somebody. Gosh, I know that when I'm up by myself, I, I reflect on, on many so many things. And like you said, the, the beauty of flight, etc., and oh, and I know I, I meant to put this in uh, and prep you for this one, but you're an airline pilot, and yep. you fly airlines. Really, do do you like flying? Oh, passionate in all aspects. I, I love airline flying um, for different reasons to flying general aviation aircraft. Airline flying, it's the safe execution of a task, and and the ability to be disciplined. I found on the 737, having flown the same aircraft for 20 years, to try and turn up and do the job just as I had on day one. Uh, that that is can be very self-satisfying. The pure joy of flight is what I see out the windscreen on the um, airliner. But when I'm flying a general aviation aircraft, it's that ability to say, I think I'll just wheel around and have another look at that paddock or that flock of birds or take it in without the regimented restrictions that, as you're well aware of, we operate in plus or minus two minutes in the airline environment. So you could almost say it's like commanding an ocean liner versus going for a sail on a yacht. <laughs> right, there's that freedom. Yeah, it is, absolute freedom. And you know, you know, when I, I finally got up in a small airplane the other day and the person was like, hey, let's file IFR. I said, no, man, I just want to, I want to turn left and turn right when I want to and climb, <laughs> descend when I want to. And, and that's something he, he just laughed at me and he, he was so giddy to see somebody with so many hours just sitting there and saying, man, this would be so cool to just do what we want. And it's that true freedom to actually pass through the air and to see sights that no one else gets to see. But you know what? They can see them if they just become a pilot, right? Absolutely, and it is accessible. And I, I often draw the analogy to people in terms of a career that people will crawl over each other's back for the corner office, whereas we get a, a new corner office every day. <laughs> right. So, so, uh, so you really do like your job still, right? Oh, absolutely. Great. Absolutely. We, yeah, I, I can't imagine doing anything else. My first job out of school, I was a paramedic, actually, and that's how I paid for my flying lessons. And that was a wonderful job and uh, taught me a, a lot about human nature. But if I had to think of any other job other than flying airplanes, it would be rather tough. Yeah, it is tough because of the beautiful things you get to see and the places that you see in the world that you probably wouldn't go otherwise, would you? No, no. I worked for an airline that collapsed uh, due to financial reasons. And prior to that, I'd only flown domestically around Australia. As a result of that collapse, I joined an international airline, and the things I saw flying internationally still astound me when I reflect upon them, seeing the southern lights at 60 degrees south, um, or the icebergs, or I was between Hawaii and Los Angeles one night, and there was a rocket launch out of Vandenberg, and it was still one of the most spectacular things I've ever seen. It was hundreds of miles away from me, but spectacular, and, and those images and those emotions will be with me always oh gosh and that that's for sure and you know the the images of flight in australia are just 
absolutely phenomenal. Uh, seeing there's a young lady that we had interviewed that flew around Australia that I thought was just amazing. Uh, you truly have a world and that you're, I'm sure, very proud of in Australia that that encompasses large cities and very sophisticated people to, to very basic living out in the quote-unquote bush. I don't know what you call it out there, but uh, yeah. what's the term you use? We call it bush flying. Oh, but, oh yeah, outback flying a lot you. of the time they call it. Thank outback, you, yeah. yeah. And, and you've done quite a bit of that, have you not? Yes, early in my career I was uh, stationed in remote Australia, uh, northwest, and I flew charter work and scenic work. And sometimes you're hundreds and hundreds of miles away from the nearest township. Uh, sometimes the airstrip was nothing more than a little bit of graded clear earth out of the scrub, and you were given a latitude and a longitude to find uh, pre-GPS. And um, you'd have to go and find some, uh, fly some mining researchers to find it. I also did a little bit of time in New Guinea, which is remote in a different way with rather more challenging terrain. Wow, that that's interesting, New Guinea. That's uh, and that's uh, I guess Papua New Guinea or Papua. Uh, Pap- yeah, I was over the um, the eastern side eastern? and okay. uh, the not the non Indonesian side. So uh, I flew very close to the border at times, though, and that that was interesting because one of the uh, charts had on a caution border where it have Indonesian fighters patrol this area. So you were very careful to um, plot where you were flying at the time. Interesting. So, so if anybody, let's we'll get back to general aviation in a second. But, but if people are listening and they're they're thinking about getting into aviation as a career and flying airplanes, you'd highly recommend it, I assume. Oh, absolutely. You've got to have the passion, I think, though, to sustain you through those periods of the career. As you're aware, it's a cyclic industry. There's there's peaks and troughs, and there'll be days or periods where you think, "Gee, my career has stagnated, or I can't get a break." And that's where the passion will sustain you. Uh, if you aren't passionate, if it's just another job, there'll be a lot of hurdles pop up in your way that make you almost want to throw the towel in. But uh, if you're passionate about it, I, I can't encourage people enough to undertake it. Well, brother, I can tell you, I've been I've been furloughed and and lived out yeah. of my car a few times. And, yep, I uh, hear you. I hear. You. <laughs> <laughs> and it is one of those things that that finally, though, when you you get to the point where you want to be, it's it's absolutely. Wonderful, absolutely wonderful, and uh, but getting back to general aviation, I mean, there there are so many people out here that love to fly and never want to do it as as a career, but but you know what, they they absolutely love flying every day, and it's a way to actually clear their minds. I find people that are in aviation, and this is my personal opinion, are, are much more well rounded. They get to see things that other people don't get to see. Plus, their aviation, their flying, actually helps them in whatever they do. It helps them in making decisions, and it, and it helps them analyze things and, and and decide what they need to do in their next step. I don't know what you feel as far as that's concerned. Yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, well, prioritization is is a major element in in any form of flying. Whether you're flying a light aircraft, making the decision to fly based on weather, or, or whether you've got multiple tasks coming up back from the cabin to the flight deck, what you've got on the next sector, fuel orders, etc. Prioritising is always a, a huge element of aviation, and I think to do that effectively, you have to get some degree of order to your thoughts, and I think that's a quality that you can carry over into everyday life. Well, Sean, I think you you actually had a, a question for Owen. 
Yeah, Owen, you know, it, it sounds like you've done flying pretty much all over the world. And what have you found, um, for, for our American listeners, people like me who are general aviation pilots here, what would you say are some of the more Australian things about flying that maybe Americans wouldn't be as familiar with? Uh, our airspace organization is one thing. From what I've seen in America, you've got vast tracts of radar coverage uh, that you're an identified aircraft being handed off from one controller to another. You don't have to get very far from an Australian capital city and, and you're out of radar coverage. You're, um, uh, you give a report and technically you put your flight plan in and the next time people hear from you possibly could be when you cancel your search and rescue watch at the end of the day. So we've got vast amounts of land in the inland that have no radar coverage or radio nav aids to support the flight, etc. Now, GPS has obviously alleviated that a lot, but that would probably be, I'd say, the major difference between the, the airspace as such uh, and, and the nature of the flying, which gives it a freedom. But I must admit, in the old days too, if uh, someone got lost, it could take quite some time to find them. You know, oh, we have a, a person that's a good friend of the podcast. Uh, I don't know if you you know who Bevan Anderson is. He has a yeah, yes, yeah, so I've spoken with Bevan. Yeah, wonderful gentleman. He has Avplan EFP. And by the way, for our listeners, if you get a chance, check this out. It's an awesome program for planning uh, your flight planning, etc. Uh, one of the things that that really struck me and shocked me was the fact that in the United States we take a lot of our flying freedoms for granted. And the cost for granted, I think he he tried to express the fact that they they play a lot they have a lot of user fees etc that are attached to their flying and the FBOs aren't quite like they are here in the U.S. So maybe maybe you could expand on that a little bit. Yeah, most airfields have a, a landing fee associated with them, and that cost has gone up and up increasingly. Similarly, at, at different airfields, if you want to fly a practice instrument approach beater and ILS etc. You're in turn charged for that. So on top of your aircraft hire, you have these auxiliary fees, and that is one of the the costs that does make general aviation flying in Australia a, a fairly tough call. And uh, sorry, what was the second part, Carl? The, the, yeah, you, you know, just the FBOs, I think, are, are quite yeah, different oh, down F there, aren't they? Yeah, FBOs, is, we don't really come close to America in terms of FBOs. Yeah, yeah. we you, you landed an outback airport. There might be an unmanned terminal, and uh, you'll have to call up for the refueler to come out and uh, get his truck out to refuel you. Or there's a Bowser there with a swipe card that you refuel, refuel yourself. So, uh, in terms of a full service uh, facility, they're very few and far between here. <laughs> so, it's a little bit different than the K cups with would you like to have like. Uh, a sweetener with that sugar or you know something else like Splenda it's a lot different no you're generally <laughs> sitting under the wing of your aircraft with a thermos and uh, having a cup of tea that you made yourself at 6 o'clock that morning what about bathrooms yeah well it's oh, obviously oh. More, 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 more challenging <laughs> for female pilots my, my wife being one of them um, sometimes there isn't one uh, and uh, or they're locked up occasionally but often it's just an old terminal or, uh, that back from the days when aviation was more government subsidized has has remained there so you can generally find those bathrooms but uh it isn't a very 
flash facility or a very um, prime facility at, at most outback airports. When you get closer into some of the urban airports, yeah, you do have those facilities, but the amount of air traffic through a lot of these remote airfields doesn't justify seemingly to the council any expenditure on it. They don't necessarily see airfields as an asset, which is a real issue here. Uh, so they're very basic facilities. They don't get much air traffic, so the mm-hmm. local councils that own them don't tend to invest much money in them. Interesting. So I'm assuming general aviation isn't quite as big as here in, in the United States. Nowhere near it. No, no unfortunately. It, um, it, it, it has a tough time of it, and I think some of those fees have something to do with it. And uh, as I said, at these country airfields and that, there isn't the amount of traffic going through it to generate, I, I suspect, enough income for, to draw businesses to the country airfields. Yeah, that's fascinating because most Australians I speak to are very passionate about aviation. How does that happen? They, they are. It, it's, and the thing is, it is a country that is built for general aviation. We have the tyranny of distance, low hills and good weather. So it should be perfect for um, committing aviation. <laughs> but it's, it's, I think the low population relative to that expanse of land is probably the element that makes it uh, not as capital intensive. It doesn't generate the profit for those that are, that are looking for it. Uh, we need the population to generate more flying activity, I think, is probably the core issue. Right, and there's vast expanses of areas that have very low population. Uh, not it's somewhat like the uh, the Western United States or or the Midwestern United States, but uh, but even more so. I mean, you can go for miles and miles, and and see no nobody out there. Speaking of which, yeah. <laughs> on your journeys, I'm sure there's some pretty amazing things that you've seen during your flight, especially going all the way around Australia. What it gives some of the journeys and some of the, the pictures that you've seen uh, that were really amazing? Some, yeah, it's, it's so many to draw upon. There were isolated, as you said, there's isolated regions of Australia and you fly over uh, townships, which were obviously during a mining boom, very vital havens, but now they're just some sandstone walls with flapping metal roofs that are now abandoned and no one's lived there for 150 years and you you swing around past this ghost town and then track on further and you'll one I always quote after seeing a ghost town, I saw a um, a white paddock, a white field just start to move like a blanket and it wasn't until I got closer that I realised it was thousands upon thousands of birds <laughs> flying in per- perfect formation. Wow. And uh, I, I couldn't work out what this one white paddock... It, was it wasn't where you'd get a salt plane or anything and it turned out that it was effectively just an acre of birds flying wingtip to wingtip oh uh, and, and the colors of the water that, sorry sorry i said that could be dangerous watch out for those bird strikes <laughs> yeah 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 no, I, I kept them at a safe distance and um it was a, a magical moment and, and the sunrise and the sunsets and the colors of the water change as you went around the country but uh, I think when people ask me that question, the thing that really I, I tried to summarise was one day I took off at Broome and took off over really crystal white sands and blue water. Within about half an hour, I was over bright, rusty red inland desert with the occasional aqua creek or stream running through it. 
Then about an hour later, I could see the coastline starting to come back towards me and vegetation start to become green again. And um, this all happened within probably two hours. I saw this expanse of, at one moment, I saw a coastal region with, with beautiful water and then this red, raw native land that you, you almost couldn't live on. Uh, and that all happened within the passage of an hour or so. And I think it was the diversity of what I saw as much as the isolated elements that made that journey just so amazing. Speaking of that diversity, you actually had to go over expanses of water, I'm assuming, to get all the way around Australia, because it includes Tasmania, right? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Tasmania, the water crossing there was um, uh, interesting in that it, the water is very cold, so I was geared up with a thermal jacket and life vest and everything in case I did have to go down in the water. But probably the most interesting uh, over water crossing, there was a small passage called the Spencer Gulf. And uh, it's known for having huge white sharks in there. Okay. Um, and I, I, I flew across there with uh, one eye out the window. And when I landed, there was a, a fundraising lunch uh, right by a, in a, a large fishing town. And the, the people came out to meet me and they looked at this little aeroplane. They didn't say anything. They said, did you just come across the Spencer Gulf? And I said, yeah. I said, you know that's full of sharks, don't you? <laughs> and I said, I can think about that now. I tried not to at the time. But, oh, um, boy. <laughs> yeah, it, it has some of the biggest sharks known to man swimming down there. So uh, the, the cold water sounded reasonably uh, enticing to me after that one. I'm assuming you had a life raft. Yeah, no, I had um, life jacket. I had a, a, an ex-military buoyancy vest and that. I was never far from – it wasn't that for the distance from land flow, but um, I was only the, – the best straight crossing was probably the greatest one, but even there I island hopped to a degree. So I didn't need to carry a raft, but I was uh, very well vested and uh, – ready to go. I had my LT strapped to me and the aircraft was also equipped with a satellite tracking system that if I hit the button, uh, they it was sending out my position, I think, every six seconds till my ground speed got below 60 knots. Interesting. And that's uh, they still have that system. What's that called again? I can't remember. Uh, it was a spider track system. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. really cool. You can actually transmit what you're doing. Uh, you know, the only downside is if you get lost, you know, they can tell if you got off track. You know? <laughs> the, the one I, I said to someone, they said, oh, you must get lonely. I said, I've got the internet on the back seat. They, um, I, I had an incident going across central Australia where I was flying. Uh, there's a, a railway line called the, over the Nullarbor. It's dead straight. And I was sitting there and I saw a train come and I thought, I'll go down and have a look. And I descended down at... Um, 500 feet a minute down to 500 feet and flew along parallel to the train for a while and he waved I think and I waved and off I went. When I landed at the next port I was getting emails from Switzerland and everywhere asking me why I'd descended. They thought I'd fallen asleep because here I was over central Australia and they saw me wifting down from 6,000 feet for no apparent reason because I wasn't going to land um, but the internet had done that. The spider track system had told the world that I was in descent so yeah, if I had have got lost or made any mess-ups, it wouldn't have been long till everybody knew about it. No, no. Uh, Good and bad thing. <laughs> yes. Good and bad, I, I agree entirely. You know, and during this journey, you actually went over to New Zealand. I, I assume 
during this whole flight? You went to New Zealand and Auckland, etc. Because no, uh, no, 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 just Australia. I didn't mind. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Okay, all right. Because I, I was wondering because a, a lot of times people don't. Uh, well, anyway, there's a really a rift between the two to, to the Kiwis and to the mainlanders here. Uh, but uh, my, my wife spent a lot of time in Christchurch on her way down to uh, Antarctica. And uh, like what, a, what a beautiful place. Uh, oh, Christchurch is beautiful. Yeah, yeah, gorgeous, gorgeous place from what I've heard. But, but so, you know, how, and this is what's, what's fascinating about Australia is how wide expansive it is and how many wonderful cities there are that you can land in. And then within maybe an hour, you're out in the bush as they call it, I guess, or in the outback, outback, and it's just absolutely wonderful, and uh, and you get some cultures that are totally different. Now, during this flying, did you find anything that actually was challenging for you when you went into these other cultures? Uh, not the cultures per se. As I said, I'd flown outback previously. Um, I purposely gone, and when I did stay somewhere, I stayed at uh, in shearing sheds where they. They shear the sheep, and I stayed away from the motels and hotels as much as I could, just so that I could actually meet the people. And the culture is more this very resilient, self-sufficient culture you find in the Australian outback, and uh, that they just get the job done, and there's no fuss. And it, it is so refreshing after the urban world where we sort of um, bleak across the internet and put headlines on papers for people doing rather little things. And out in these communities, they're doing some amazing work and they just go about their job with very little in resources or support. And that was one of the reasons I chose the Flying Doctor as the charity I wanted to um, contribute funds to, is that they support these com outback communities in such a wonderful way that... Uh, it's hard to imagine the people having a, a, a reasonable lifestyle out there without the flying doctors supporting them. Explain, explain the flying doctors and this charity that, and maybe give us a website. What, what exactly do they do? Uh, the Royal Flying Doctor was founded, uh, gee, back in the 1920s. I think it was 1928, but don't quote me. And um, it is remote-based medicine, effectively. The people are so far away from capital cities or, or, or major hospitals that they have aircraft that will fly out there with a doctor on board and a flight nurse and they will recover people as a result of accidents. They will also fly clinics around to the outback areas where they'll take a nurse around and they'll do six or seven stops and bring medical care to those outback communities. And they do all of this right across Australia to the outback regions. Uh, they also do intercapital transfers of, of people that are um, not well as well, but where their origins are and what they're really known for is providing health care to people that are hours and hours away from the nearest hospital. Wow, what a, what a noble cause. And, and I, I think we don't realize that because, you know, me living in mainland U.S., you know, I dial 911, there better be someone here in 15 minutes. Yeah, uh, yeah. That doesn't happen quite often there, does it, in the outback? Not, not in the outback. No way. No, it's um, you are very, very far removed. You, you're probably within an hour or so of King Air flight time. Uh, wow. But if you were to do it by road, it would be some of the roads get cut during the wet season too. There's a time of the year here called the wet up in the the northwest of Australia. And I used, when I was flying charter, we actually used to go 
and do a run where before the wet, where people would put their food orders in and a truck would deliver their food because once the wet came, the roads would get cut. So they couldn't get their food. Um, so that, you can imagine in terms of healthcare, if you were to have a medical emergency and the roads are cut, there's just no way to town. Really? Gosh, that's yeah. amazing. What so, a wonderful service. So the flying doctor is literally an airborne lifeline. It sure is. Wow, that's ter- that's wonderful what they do. And, and uh, we'll have a link to their website, definitely. So if you're looking to, right. to donate to something, that that would be a wonderful thing. One question before we move on to your other books. I'm an American, and yep. I would love someday to fly in Australia. And I have friends in Melbourne, and they say, man, you got to come down here. you got to check it out because – you go from city and out to what you call the outback so quickly, and it's absolutely beautiful. Um, what do I need to do? What should I do to prepare when I come down there? I'd say the first thing to do would probably be to contact the Civil Aviation Safety Authority in Australia because the first uh, administrative issue would be to have a, a license that would permit you to fly in Australia. So I would contact them well in advance and say, what requirements do I have to convert my US license for a flying journey whilst I'm on holidays in Australia. So I'd contact the the regulatory body. But after that, um, from my time at a flying school is, we used to have people come in and they, as you do over there, get checked out on the aircraft type and do a dual check and um, go from there. But it's, uh, the main thing is I think to get the regulatory boxes ticked. Uh, and, And the more notice you can give the, the the regulatory body, I think, the better is my experience with them. Interesting. So I, I have to give this a shot. I know it's a long a long flight over there, but I definitely want to do this. Uh, and and it's just it, one thing I like. I said I love about Australia and Australians and and the folks that I've met here in the U.S. is they're so incredibly passionate about aviation. They're so willing to help you too. That's just I think really cool. Very welcoming people. So I definitely want to get down there and, and fly some general aviation. But uh, Owen, before you know, we've we've taken a lot of your time here talking about general aviation. There are a bunch of other things that you do, and I definitely want to get into that. There's some books that you've written. You're you're a pl- prolific author, a, a speaker, etc. Let's talk a little bit about some of the other books. One of the books in particular is uh, Down to Earth uh, that you yep. wrote, which is a, a fascinating journey. Uh, tell us a little bit about Down to Earth. Uh, Down to Earth is a story of a, a World War II fighter pilot. Um, he was a Scotsman and flew for the Royal Air Force, literally from the evacuation of Dunkirk, where he was shot down, right through to the... Um, D-Day landings. So he was an operational fighter pilot right through World War II. He was only one of two of the pilots on his pilot's course who was still alive at the end of the war. And uh, he was a fascinating gentleman to, um, I won't say interview, we used to just sit down and share a pot of tea um, and discuss those times. And he did the early days of night fighting, radar intercepts, just just an amazing gentleman to discuss. And, and the fact is that in 1988, the aircraft at Dunkirk, in which he was shot down, surfaced through the sand and it's um, been restored in the UK awesome. and, uh, and should fly reasonably soon, I'd suspect. I've seen photos of it and it's, um, it's virtually complete, so I'm not quite sure what's holding the process up. But uh, unfortunately, he didn't get to uh, live to see that day, and, uh, but I did become very good friends with both he and his wife and uh just amazing gentlemen and like so many of these these gentlemen that their story was just 
kept to the side. They didn't really advertise it, but when you sat down and listened to their their tales of early aviation, you, you just take your hat off to them. There are so many stories out there that I wish were told, and I'm so glad that this w- this was told here. Uh, you know, the Battle of Britain, D-Day, Dieppe. By the way, Dieppe is, uh, to me, is a place outside of Moncton in Canada. What was the Battle of Dieppe one more time? Uh, Dieppe was um, on the French coast, and some people say it was, uh, in, in a way, a bit of a trial for the D-Day landings, uh, but it, it didn't go um, terribly well. They, they met very fierce resistance from some encampments and... Uh, artillery that was entrenched and uh they they had some very heavy losses at the raid on Dieppe and the the chap I wrote the book about Kenneth McGlashan he actually was on one of the first waves to attack the coastline and I won't go into the whole detail but his aircraft did get uh damaged and when he came back he was attending the briefing to go again and they came back and said you're not going sir and he said what and the whole belly of his aircraft was crushed and it was just hanging in the fabric um, he hadn't noticed, but he, he'd flown too low over an exploding bomb and, and it damaged the bottom of his aircraft. So um, it, it was a, a mate. He said he could hear the shells going past his cockpit um, as he was attacking the coast. And they weren't just enemy shells. They were also some of the Royal Navy because he said on that day every single-engine aeroplane was a Messerschmitt to the Royal Navy. That must have been scary, getting shot down by your your own people. But uh... well, well, the shots were just flying everywhere. He said so. Oh, I can imagine. So it, it's it's interesting you say that. I flew through some um, bats once, and I I had multiple hits, lost landing lights and HF aerials. And I said to my father, "How did he attack a target when he knew he was getting shot at?" I said, "I I flew through some bats, and I got terrified." <laughs> and it, and my father's logic was, he said, I thought the one that was going to get me, I'd never know about. So if I felt the aircraft go thump or bang when something hit me, I was still alive. I was okay. <laughs> That's a great way to, to think about it, it. If you can adopt that cockeyed logic, I think it's very good. But I don't know if I'd be too good at adopting that cockeyed logic. <laughs> well, I'm going to keep that in the back of my mind. If it goes thump yeah. and you're, you're still alive, you're, you're doing well. I, I really... that, that, was, that was his thoughts, and he did it 201 times, so it worked. <laughs> Owen, did you say you, you flew through bats like the flying mammals? That's correct. That's correct. Um, where I was based at the time, there was actually an orchard. And then the other side of the airfield, there was a, a large water mass where they used to nest. And unbeknownst to me, because i just started, it was on my first or second flight, at sunrise and sunset, they used to migrate between their, where they'd rest and where they'd eat. And I was coming on approach through about 300 feet with all the lights on, and things just started going bang and flying at me, and I had no idea what it was initially. <laughs> and um, when I landed, I, I said, you know, what was that? And the other pilot said, oh, that's the fruit bats. We meant to tell you every uh, night and morning they, <laughs> they migrate. It's now in the manuals. It's now in the, the documentation, caution, fruit bats oh, wow. migrate. But uh, no one had told me. And, uh, yeah, I think I lost a taxi light, um, a HF aerial, dented the tip tank. There's something else. But I, for a moment I was going to go around. I thought I'm going to have to climb through these again. So uh, about five seconds after I decided to pers- persevere with the landing at the – I was through them. <laughs> wow. Um, that, yeah, that'd be slightly terrifying. <laughs> yeah, it just, just caught me off guard. That was the, the main thing about it, yeah. 
you know, you talk a little bit about uh, dealing with emergencies, I guess, and that one, is this your first book, by the way, The the Practical Pilot? Was that your first book? Is that correct? No, or? The Practical Pilot's the most recent one. It's, oh. um, yeah, I'm releasing a series of them. That's just the first one to come out. And, um, yeah, so it's my most recent one. Interesting. You, you know, honestly, Owen, the reason I bought the book is because of the cover. It had a tomahawk on <laughs> tomahawk. it. The tomahawk was on there. I said, that's it. Yeah. If someone's going to picture yeah. a, a tomahawk on there, I'm buying the book. Because <laughs> I absolutely love that that airplane, and I love the picture on there. By the way, Owens Up has an incredible writing style, and that's something we haven't really talked about. He truly is a wordsmith, and he's able to bring the reader into the journey uh, through his, his amazing narration and his amazing ability to describe where you are at the time. But he also is great at explaining concepts in a very basic level that everybody can understand, and that's one of the reasons that, that I love reading your books, Owen. I think they are absolutely terrific. Uh, one of the, the, the books that I haven't been able to get to, though, uh, and tell us a little bit about this, uh, and I'm a little ignorant here, are the 50 Tales of Flight and the 50 More Tales of Flight. Tell us a little bit about what those are. Uh, well, 50 Tales of Flight was the first one, obviously. It was more, when I saw that the e-book generation had come out, I decided to um, share some of the articles I'd written. I've had about four or 500 articles published over the last 15 years, I guess. And I picked some of them out, and they were experiences from the flight deck, from biplanes, from talking about people I knew in aviation who've, who've passed away and, and what that means to me each time I go flying. So a, a varying range of topics. And so I just called it 50 Tales of Flight. I compiled them into one book. And to be perfectly honest, it caught me totally off guard. It, it sold about three or 4,000 copies in quite a, a short period of time. And uh, so I put 50 more tales together, uh, which um, I was probably more ordered in my thoughts when by the time I got to 50 more tales because I, uh, I could almost say the 50 tales of flight to me was an experiment to see, oh, how do you do this self-publishing? And, um, and it just went and met with such wide response both in the UK and the US and um, Brazil. Bill, France, Germany, it's, it's, it's gone just about everywhere. So both of those books just relate to experiences I've had in the cockpit and, and sometimes it's just the thoughts that aviation evokes uh, in us and as well some of the wartime tales as you, you spoke about. Well, it's interesting because those, those seem to be your bestseller books and, and it was the two books that I actually was uh, least interested when I turned to your website, but I'm, now I'm going to have to read those so I can't wait to, to dive into yeah. those. Solo flight, um, the feedback I've received from solo flight is huge. So it, it probably, because it's Australian-centric, hasn't quite had the, the global reach per se, but um, the feedback in terms of people was probably the strongest. Yeah, I mean, I you know, as far as the passion of flight, it really truly comes out in solo flight. So I, I think that's absolutely wonderful. Now, Owen, you also have this blog, and uh, we're kind of running out of time, but I want to, I want to, <laughs> gosh, you, you know, we could speak for hours because there are so many things that you do, and you're so passionate about about flying. But you have this thing called thepilotsblog.com, which I think is really cool because it mixes, you know, news and an aviation and a passenger blog. 
blog because you're able to actually bring to the passenger the experience of flying and explain things in very basic sense. But you also are into blog posts for those that are, of us that are really into aviation. So explain a little bit about that web- website, thepilotsblog.com. I had more. My um, initial blog on my website, owensup.com, and I found it was getting more and more aviation centric. And, and really, I want to keep Owens up for my speaking. And I thought, well, the pilot's blog, I can share what aspects of aviation. And I looked at the emails I was getting, and they were from fledgling pilots wanting to discuss various aspects. They were from passengers wondering why something went thump under the floor when they were getting loaded. And then there were people saying, my flight's been cancelled due to volcanic ash. Why can't I fly? So I thought I'll address current affairs in terms of aviation. Uh, I'll try to discuss some of those uh, flight aspects for aspiring pilots and also those for passengers. And it grew out of that. It's really a, a blog that has responded to the questions I've been asked rather than something I conjured. So it, it's more that the, the aviation public or the aviation travelling public that have, have determined what the pilot's blog is. Um, they give me the ideas and I answer the questions and have the interactions. So it's, it's worked out incredibly well and, and shown to be very popular and it gives me a creative outlet to um, sit down and write. What is, um, you've obviously have quite a history with aviation and all the things you've done and the people you've met. Any regrets, or is there something that you did that you will never regret? Oh, gee, uh, regrets. I can't really say I've had regrets, because even the, the, the things that have gone bad, such as uh, the airline I worked for, the collapse, there were good outcomes. I, I, I That effectively was the turning point that I got into aviation. Uh, writing was because of that airline collapse. So even the bad things have have manifested positives but Good. in terms that I'll never forget I, I obviously the first solo is is a moment people will never forget and and on the other side of the coin is I remember when my first magazine article was written I was on an overnight in Los Angeles and my wife uh, photocopied it and faxed it to the hotel and I could still remember getting this scratchy fax under my my door and it said, buy Owens up. And it was the biggest thrill I think I've ever had that, you know, something I wrote actually got published. Um, <laughs> so, because um, that, that has led to a whole new branch of my, my life. And it's something that I can really share with my kids as well. They, they all like to read my books, etc. But, um, yeah, I, I, I can't say I've had any regrets. I think we, we all probably would, I would have liked to have flown in more fighter jets or, or done certain things or had more time for warbirds possibly but I look if I was to complain about any aspect of my aviation career uh, I would have to be the most selfish person known mm-hmm. to man I think I've been very very lucky yes indeed well you, you sure have and, and you've inspired so many people uh, to actually get into aviation to stay in aviation and through your books I think you do that and your personality comes out in your books and your writing style is absolutely phenomenal 
And uh, oh, and unfortunately, we you know we have to wrap up here. I I wish we could talk for another you know ten hours on all the things you've done because you truly are a dynamic individual. And I hope maybe sometime we could possibly have you on again on the Stuck Mike Avcast. Uh, but but for people to find you and to find the projects you're doing, because uh, we want we want people to find you and see the things you're doing in the future. What's the best place for them to go? What website? Uh, probably the pilotsblog.com is the the best website. Uh, my other one, owensup.com, does cover the books, etc. as well. But the pilotsblog.com is always kept up to date with the most recent events. And uh, there's an Owens Up author Facebook page, which I tend to uh, update as well. Awesome. So the Facebook page and also the pilotsblog.com, we will have links to that in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Owens Up, we really appreciate your coming here this evening and, and sharing your passion with us and the passion of to the audience here. Uh, anything else you want to share with our audience uh, before we leave as far as, uh, you know, we have people that are just getting started in aviation and people have been flying for many years. Uh, what can you tell our audience before we leave today? Oh, look, I, I think if the passion is there, then passion and perseverance, you can achieve anything. Uh, the best student pilots I ever taught weren't the best pilots. They were the pilots that applied themselves. So there's nothing that you can't achieve in this industry, I don't think, if you really apply yourself. And um, it, it, without doubt, it was the best thing I ever did was to go into aviation. And i just like to say that what you do also is amazing to encourage people because you've got a truly global reach and, and it's been my pleasure to speak to you. It hasn't been. Uh, I, I consider myself um, humbled somewhat to be asked to speak to people on these podcasts. So, um, no, I think the work that you're doing spreads the word and if the people on the other end hear it and they just apply themselves, you know, literally the, the sky isn't the limit. It's just the beginning really. Well, thanks, Owen. That was that was terrific, and you know I, I appreciate your coming here today. And it, it truly is an, a wonderful experience to speak with somebody who is passionate about aviation, and persistence and perseverance. I think and passion are, are the the things we have to look towards in aviation, because you know the, this podcast here, Stuck Mike Afcat, it's about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly, and it's people from all walks of life, just like Owen describes in all of his books and in his blog, and uh, and you know you you are somebody who who. Tr- really is an advocate for aviation and, and a wonderful ambassador to the passion of aviation. So, Owen, thanks again for being here. No, thank That's you. It. Thanks to all of you. It's been a real pleasure. <laughs> well, thanks so much. And uh, and don't forget to visit, you know, his website, the, the pilotsblog.com, thepilotsblog.com, and we'll have a link to that on the website. Also, don't forget to visit our sponsor, uh, the uh, aerospacescholarships.com is our sponsor for this episode. And for myself, Sean Moody. And Victoria Zyko, and of course, Owens Up. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next episode. Don't forget to include passion into your next flight. Talk to you next episode. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production.